Hey everyone, I'm Danielle and this is the Classical Liberal Project. I'm here with Jonathan Casey. Hello, hello. And Joshua Eagle. What's going on? And uh, we've got some interesting news stories to talk to you guys about. And uh, I don't know, Jonathan, what did you bring? Well, for, I'm stuck in the, uh, in, the, in the great ice storm of 2023. We seem to be getting these once a year now with, like a, I guess, climate change. But we've been, <laughs> my poor wife, I, I haven't suffered. I was able to get out today and drive around and do some work. But we've been, uh, our kids have been out of school since Tuesday, and it looks like they'll be out of school tomorrow as well. So my poor wife is getting a little stir-crazy and remembering why we, why we left Wisconsin uh, after five years in the winter. We had two kids up there, and my poor wife was stuck indoors with the kids all all winter long and she was like you know what it's time to go so we went it's uh but no in texas we can't handle we can't handle the snow but it's, it's just it's ice right now out there. yeah it's the same in tennessee uh, there i think i was talking to you about this over the phone there's a little bit of i think we're getting the remnants of that storm because there's ice and sleet and stuff and uh yeah it's like uh if there's any ice on the ground no one knows how to drive it's the same cliche about the south i feel like texas is unique though you have that same problem everyone just kind of loses their mind when it gets when it yeah. gets cold <laughs> yeah no they do they don't well nobody knows how to drive in the snow and nobody really should be you know driving on the ice as it is but no it's bad they, they i'm sure you everyone's seen the videos of people going around a curve and just going a little too a little too fast and you know sliding mm. around um, i've seen at least four videos of people like walking on their front porch in texas and then busting their head because of the ice oh, oh yeah you know what i mean mm-hmm. yep i i was at a customer's house and i was walking up the steps and it was just slick ice and i was holding onto the handrail because it was it was pretty it was pretty slick i made the mistake I, uh, last mm-hmm. night of trying because we've got like a thin it's the same thing we've got like a thin layer of ice on everything right now and i made this mistake last night of trying to get my grill going just to see if i could do it and I hit the, I turned the gas on, got the thing going, and my knobs were literally frozen shut. Oh, no way. That I, yeah, it was fun. It was great. Needless I to spent, it was, it was really Can pretty you... though. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. It was really pretty because you've got, I mean, the, what, it, last night, uh, last night it just, it's uh, sleeted and it froze to all the trees. Now the trees are like three feet oh, lower, yeah. lower than they usually are. So you're driving along and the trees are hitting the top of your vehicle. Mm. You know, they're all oh. bent over and stuff. And it's gorgeous because it's all covered in ice. Yeah. But. Yeah, I hope the trees hope the trees are okay. I spent ten years in Nebraska dealing with those winters, and that's why I'm in Seattle. Because yeah, I can't do that. I feel like Seattle just stays within like forty and sixty all year, right? So something uh, like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. We did we did get some snow on the thirty first, but you know it didn't stick or anything. It was really just novel. Don't want to spend too much time on this, but I am. I think Washington's one of the most interesting states because I think you can find like every biome there. You can find yeah. like desert on the east side of the state, and then you've got the mountains, and then the west side, you've got this kind of like very temp. I mean, again, it's for me, it's weird because I grew up in Florida where it's flat and you ocean. Mm-hmm. Going to the west coast where you've got the mountains right next to the to the Pacific, it's absolutely beautiful. So yeah, I so uh, the only time I've been to Washington, my wife and I went and visited Glacier National Park. Hmm. Uh, which is in, is it in Washington? No, it's in Montana. Montana. I think it's in Montana. Montana. <laughs> Anyways, it's in Montana. I believe it's in Montana. Uh, right I was going to say right Alaska, of, so. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> uh, but, well, that would make sense. Uh, but no, so Montana's it's right, right. Yeah, right. Montana's right. So so we, we visit there. Gorgeous. We saw, you know, brown bear crossing the road. Absolutely. I mean, the scenery is some of the most beautiful in the country. Uh, we're, we were going to camp there. All the campsites were filled up. No big deal. National parks usually are like that, unless you make a reservation. So we're driving out of there. We'll find a campsite on the way. We drive for about 30 minutes. Every campsite's filled up. That's kind of weird. This is about 7, 8, or 9 o'clock. We're like, okay, well, we'll keep driving. We'll find a campsite open. 
keep driving, driving, and then we're checking, calling ahead on campsites to figure out, okay, what's going on? Like, uh, you know, do you have an open, open, uh, open campsite? No one, not a single campsite we could find. Like, that's kind of weird. Okay, whatever. We'll drive for another two hours, three hours. You know, we'll get somewhere about 10, 11, 12 at night. And be no big deal. Uh, so we're fine with that. So about two or three hours later, um, 10, 11, or 11 o'clock at night, we're like, okay, we'll just get a hotel room. So we start calling hotels. There were no hotel rooms at all. We called hours down the highway, not a single hotel room. Turns out that there was a biker convention that was going through that entire area and every hotel room campsite had been completely, completely booked up. So I was like, okay, whatever. So I just ended up, we just ended up, I just drove all the way through the night. We got to Seattle uh, like six in the morning with the sunrise coming up. It was a crystal clear day in Seattle. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, and, and we had a lot of fun in Seattle, but I was, I was worn out. That was, that's one of those memories you're yeah. like in the middle of it. You're like, this sucks, but at least you got a story out of it. Mm, yeah. No joke. <laughs> you didn't have to sleep in your car. You're a trooper for driving through the night. I probably would have just pulled over and fell. Yeah. I, I slept for about an hour or two hours in the middle somewhere. Got uh, it. But I, I, you know, I'm six foot four. I can't like sleeping in a car is not, no, yeah, I get it's not comfortable. So, <laughs> I get that. Not at all. So, man. Oh. Well, anyways, it's been, it's been a crazy week in um in the the world the the the, the Twitterverse and the regular verse. I don't yeah. know about you guys whether you've been seeing some of the stuff, but I mean it's been a week since the uh, the Nichol- the Tyree Nichols whole uh, shooting, and I feel like there's been a couple more stories that have just shown up in the last week. Um, mm-hmm. Not a fun time to be watching that all that stuff play out. Um, I just read about uh, in Chicago they just paid uh, Chicago police paid out twelve million dollars to a family. Of a twelve-year, yeah, I think it was a twelve-year-old who were they shot in the knee. He was sitting on his bed with mm. his hands up, and they busted into the apartment and shot him in the knee. I, I just, you know, I can't imagine as a parent. I can't imagine having something like that happen to your child. But you know, I, we, you know, we want to teach our kids that they can have somebody to trust, that an authority figure you can have some relationship and with and trust. And it's just, if you're gonna, if you're gonna see these stories, it's really hard to, really hard to, to reinforce any of that because you know if they're in trouble you want to teach them okay this is where you go if you're in trouble this is you look out for and boy it's 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 a scary thought i learned to dial 911 like that's that's all i knew how to dial when i was a kid i don't know what kids are doing these days yeah i you know so many people that are watching this um this is i think what our second or third episode now um are probably familiar with why we created this show and why we exist and i you know you danielle and and jonathan you feel free to articulate something different but the way that i've always seen this show is this this is an opportunity for us to talk about what's going on in the real world and map it back to how kind of classical liberalism is a solution to a lot of the problems that we see um and i think that's one of the reasons why we started this it's also one of the reasons jonathan i think why you're part of the uh, libertarian party and why you started the classical liberal caucus and um there i think if you want to really dig into the whole situation around police brutality there are a lot of libertarian solutions um, that i think honestly when you really look at the situation i think the only group of uh, people in politics right now that are actually offering legitimate solutions to the issue and not just virtue signaling mm-hmm. are libertarians and that was actually more true two years ago um, than ever before when we had a libertarian member of Congress, really the only person that was pushing for reform on the issue on one of the issues that I think would really be the silver bullet. So this whole p- police brutality thing is reform on qualified immunity. And yeah. I can't think of any other political, any other political group right now that's actually pushing for that. I mean, I think there's some people in the progressives 
that are pushing for it. And I think there was a Republican, there were a couple of Republican sponsors for that tripartisan legislation in 2020. But, um, you know, I don't want to, you know, we, we can get into that conversation a little bit later, but I, I think that that alone is one of the silver bullet issues that I think the CLC strongly endorses. And a lot of our you know, people in our orbit and our, our, our advisory board also back up is qualified immunity reform is something we have to explore to fix the problem. Um, it, the thing about qualified immunity too, is that it can be done at a local level. It's been, it was done in New York. It's been done in several other large cities. Uh, and in fact, uh, Colorado banned it out outright entirely in their state. So there are, there is movement on this front and there isn't, there isn't the sky is falling results, right? Holding police accountable is the core issue here. When people think that they're going to get away with something, they're going to try to get away with it. And especially if you're in a position of authority, people who, you know, I would sell, say that, you know, there's two types of people who become a police officer, the people who do it for all the right reasons and the people who do it for all the wrong reasons. And so when you have this perverse incentives of where they can kind of get away with anything, you're going to find that these, these, these officers who have bad intentions or who have malicious intentions are going to get, want to get away with what they can. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. The, it, it, and then you have one quick thought is that when when you have this situation and you have this kind of this thin blue line where even the quote unquote good cops are not reporting or not holding back the bad cops, it kind of it's you know the, the, the expression is you know they the expression is you know one bad one bad apple. Well, guess what? You know what the end of that end of that expression is? One bad apple spoils the entire barrel. So conservatives always like to say, "Oh, it's just one bad apple." You know what happens? It spoils everything. Yeah. That's actually a really good point. That's that analogy actually does map over really well. You know, one of the things that um, actually Cato did a really good article on this, um, specifically addressing the Tyree Nichols situation, and they said exactly the same thing you did. That I mean, it, in a nutshell, when you have basically no accountability, and for those people that don't know what qualified immunity is, it's basically legal protection for law enforcement where they can basically be shielded from liability for for their actions. So. It's much, much harder to prosecute and go after law enforcement when they break the law or when they commit abuse or when they do inappropriate things. And qualified immunity, which is not, from what I understand, a, a law that was passed. It's not something that was something that like Congress created. It's a consequence of like a legal doctrine created by the court system. Supreme Court invented it in the 60s to it was basically invented out of thin air. It was judicial um, what do they call it? Activist, judi activist judges. That's really what it was. So conservatives who complain about activist judges, well, they're a bit quiet on this one. Do you uh, do you have the context on? Uh, was there a partisan bent to that when it came out initially? I mean, I I'm don't no, know like, if there's a immunity, I don't know if there was a partisan bent uh, to it, but I do know that it was eventually, you know, it was essentially just invented because, you know, how can we hold? How can cops in the process of their duties be held accountable for their actions? Which, you know, makes makes no sense, and it well, wasn't really invented out of thin air. Well, and that's that's really what going back to your analogy, the Apple situation, that's really what Cato said is when you have a culture of basically near zero accountability, you have a situation where it, it's going to reflect and make law enforcement less safe because they cannot address real systemic, you know, repeat offenders because they're shielded from liability. Um, there was actually an article that came out specifically about one of the Memphis police officers involved in the beating of Terry Nichols, who apparently ripped a woman out of her car in Memphis, dislocating her shoulder because she was laughing during a traffic stop. This happened in 2021, I believe. The same guy that ended up beating, that's now uh, one of the, the, I believe the four cops, I believe, that were involved in this whole situation with Tyree. I mean, could you imagine if there was a culture of accountability there? Man would still be alive, right? So yeah. 
that massive, massive problem there. Um, you see this with every story, though. You, I mean, with nearly every story that, of police abuse, you look and dig into their history and see a pattern. I right. mean, it's 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 dis- small disciplinary things here and there and there that build up, and eventually, you know, like you can see some of these shootings coming a mile away. And then the other issue, the other issue is is you you know when a cop gets even when a cop gets fired, even if we're fortunate enough that a cop gets fired for doing something bad that didn't necessarily end up in somebody being killed, but it was still bad enough for them to be fired. They'll just go get hired by another police department. So right. we we need we you know we one of the things that comes along with holding them accountable is also creating a um, a dat a national database that once you've been you know removed for certain actions, you go on that database and that you know police departments have to put out, hey, we're hiring somebody even though he was he was fired for beating someone up. So I, I, we have to we have our local communities. We've got to hold our our police accountable and say, listen, don't hire these people. Don't hire people with these track records of abuse and violence. Well, that's kind of the problem with police unions, right? A lot of people have issues with the unions. And and part of it is that there's no community aspect to that either, right? It's the government and it's the cops, but there's no like actual people that are supposed to be served in those negotiations. So I think that, uh, that too. Absolutely. I think the police unions are something that actually you, I, I'm not going to say bipartisan, but I'd see that I, I get less pushback when we talk about getting rid of abolishing or reforming police unions. than when we say the same thing about, say, teachers unions, which is also another public sector union. But a personal anecdote that I have on this situation that kind of really shows why I, I personally, you know, not speaking for the CLC, but at least I personally believe that we should uh, uh, we should we should abolish public sector unions for several different reasons. But one of the more poignant examples that I think stick out to me was, um, you know, I, I helped start a, a 501c4 that did direct lobbying on the issue of civil uh, uh, civil asset forfeiture. Hmm. And we've done work at the state legislature in Tennessee about that for years now, going back to like 2017. And every year when we have a reform bill, any reform bill, I mean, it can be very minor to, to very comprehensive. We have the police union paying to send lawyers there to argue against it. And in many cases, like in 2021, they will show up and give complete, absolute falsehoods, like misleading lawmakers and giving them incorrect facts to try to move them, sway them against voting for the bill. And the huge irony there is that you are basically, the taxpayers are subsidizing and paying for the cost of these attorneys to argue on behalf of the state that the state should have the ability to seize the taxpayer's assets without due process. And it's just like peak, peak corruption to me. Like that's just peak wrong, you know, like the taxpayer shouldn't be paying for that. By mm-hmm. any so that's just one small anecdote, one problem around the police union situation. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I don't hate police unions personally or teachers unions. I just wish they focused more on the like, human aspect of like labor practices and pay and shit like that, like whatever bargain together so that you get paid well enough and get enough sleep. But like, you don't need a lobby. That's ridiculous. I, uh, so to your point about reform, Jonathan, um, I think to this day and you know, there wasn't, I don't think, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think I heard about qualified immunity since until the George Floyd thing. Like, I, I, I think I'd heard about it in passing as a concept, but I don't think there was any sort of cohesive national movement around reforming it and getting rid of qualified immunity until George Floyd. 
Um, but I was doing some digging today because uh, we were, you know, we had prepped. So we were going to talk about this topic and I was trying to read into it. And you're right. There's one state. There's only two states that have done anything about this. Colorado is one. New Mexico is the other. Every national reform attempt for this has been killed. Um, and at this point, I think that, uh, yeah, there, there absolutely has to be a national movement around this. I mean, a piecemeal approach is good, but we're talking about two states where the only thing that came out of the George Floyd protests, those were massive, massive protests. And that's it. I know Radley Balco has done a number of looks at, at what actually the effects of the protests were. And he, he makes the argument that they were effective. I am not familiar enough to, to, to know. I don't, you know, I don't have the data. This many cities passed this many bills. Yeah, of course. Of course. So, um, but I would definitely recommend anybody look at what he's done as far as kind of the effects of the protests. Um, I, you know, it's, it's okay. one of those things. Go ahead. Let, let, think about this for a second. This is something that I was thinking about the other day. What if this whole situation with Tyree Nichols would have come out in 2018 or 2019? Do you think that there would have been a similar approach to the, to the police officers in, in question? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but this kind of stuff has happened for decades, like decades. Right. Um, well, not just, not, this is not yeah. a recent phenomenon. And I think that there was a cultural shift that happened in 2020 that made any, I, I would say it scared them. You know, it scared law enforcement. I mean, I, they, were, they were notably concerned about releasing these videos for obvious reasons. Yeah. Oh. oh, and even in Memphis, they they were heavily concerned. I don't think there was a ton of riots. I, I haven't looked in. I didn't. I don't know if they did or not. I'm not aware of major yeah. riots, but I I know that there were protests, and I know that there yeah. were like blocking of roadways and stuff like that's that's what I saw coming out of the whole thing. Um, but I'm not there physically on the ground. So. <clears throat> well, as far as as far as whether this video had come out in the back, I mean, look at Rodney King, uh, back in the yeah. '90s when that video came out. I think that there are you know. I think the way that this, you know, one of the things I try to point out to people is like, well, George Floyd wasn't innocent. He was cracked. He was smoked hero, et cetera, et cetera. Like, hang on. The black community, the black, they they have had all of this shit piled on them for decades and years of abuse, right? So when you start building up this kind of this undercurrent, this, this um, you know, a powder keg of abuse, abuse here, abuse there, piles up, piles up, and piles up, all you need is a spark. So George Floyd was not a perfect you know, Christ-like uh, figure of, of sacrifice, but he was the spark. You can't predict what a spark was. You know, what spark, what spark, what is going to spark some of these protests, one of these, these mass outpourings of, 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 of protests. And so you don't know what's going to spark it, but he was still a spark. Um, another thing I would say is, you know, ever since we've had, you know, cameras and, and body cameras and, and cell phone cameras, what, what, what have we seen less of? Well, where are the UFO videos? We don't see any more UFOs videos. Where are the ghosts? <laughs> videos we don't see any more ghost videos you know what we do see more of police abuse videos yeah car crash videos things that have been happening this entire time they just weren't caught on camera right so so that you know we're just getting into this time where we're realizing how common this stuff is i mean we just this past week we had a video of cops shooting a, a w a double amputee yeah, uh, a double amputee and, and you you have these constant videos you know that these are going to keep piling up these are going to keep happening i you know at some point, the dam's going to burst and we're going to get some major legislation through simply because these videos are not going away. These incidents are not stopping. Um, and look at the Uvalde police shooting or uh, the school shooting where the yeah. police sat outside and waited and waited and waited. And, uh, you know, the out the outrage to that we haven't every human has, you know, unless you're a psychopath, every human has some type of innate sense of justice. And when we see these things that counteract what we think justice should be, where we, we react in a very visceral way. So 
I don't, I cannot see any path, but there in the future, we're going to get some major police reform act done because these videos are not going to go, not going to stop coming. They're going to keep happening. These situations don't just go away without any type of action. So. Yeah. I think the thing that stuck out to me, and I think that'll stick with me emotionally for a long time as a parent is the, the, the police, they're pulling families away from trying to go in and save their own kids. I mean, that absolutely disturbing. And could you imagine that kind of stuff plays out that, that to your point, like that kind of stuff, has played out for decades and no one's known about it. It's been an, it's been a personal anecdote, like, right. like people, like real people having this experience, but being able to see it and share it with the entire world really goes to show the systemic issues here, like really systemic issues that are deeply rooted in, in our law enforcement system. And I hope it fixes it. And I know you agree with me, but it's, George it's worth repeating. Being, yeah. And yeah, I mean, and George Floyd, not being, uh, not being a saint has nothing to do with, we all agree that law enforcement shouldn't be able to uniformly, you know, unilaterally kill people. Like, right. And listen, point. once everyone agrees with that, you know, right. And mm. once we get done with, and once we get done with qualified immunity, you know, what we need to take on next. Uh, oh gosh, what's called? I'm going to lose my mind. The one, the, the immunity for prosecutors. Um, uh, it's, I forget uh, the exact term for it, but it's immunity for prosecutors. So if a prosecutor hides evidence that could have saved a, mm. you know, a, a defendant's, you know the prosecution or the defendant from being unjustly uh unjustly found guilty they go walk free it doesn't Prosec matter they, prosecutorial immunity which prosecutorial, prosecutorial yeah. immunity exactly yeah. so you have these cases where a prosecutor openly hides evidence and goes and tries another case because he has prosecutorial mm -hmm. immunity and then so, the taxpayers money is wasted retrying these people when we find that it, there was a right. mistrial because of that yeah no, it's it's a it's a cycle, cycle downward, and ultimately, ultimately, we just we have to find ways to hold these people accountable. Uh, you know, that, that's what it boils down to. Well, um, yeah, and the solution is less clear. Uh, it's easy to it's easy to diagnose it than it is to solve it. Um, I don't know how you guys feel, but I'm sure you probably feel very similarly. It doesn't seem like there's any sort of effort other than virtue signaling on behalf of the old parties to fix the problem, and I think that's kind of where LP National comes in and the, the Libertarian Party um, is really, in my opinion, at least historically, been the only party that stand really stood for real reforms in this area that other that the that the old parties are unwilling to, to take on. Um, yeah, so we should. These are the issues we can win on. I mean, these are the issues that the you know Republicans and Democrats aren't going to touch. The Republicans are the Republicans are going to go law and order, yay, 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 and the Democrats are going to play lip service to it. And pay, say, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna you know have uh, we're gonna move some more money into social services. And, mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's not gonna stop with the, the police behavior. That's the problem. Yeah, right? like I, I was in social work, and I support having social workers there in those situations, but I don't support police and then bringing a social worker in later. You need to teach police social work skills. In, in Dallas, we've had a we've had a test program for a, a couple years now. Where it's on nine one one calls, where there's no uh, apparent threat of violence, they will send a social worker and a police officer together oh, to it. the scene. They will deal with it if, as soon as the police officer says, "Okay, you know what, I'm not needed here," he'll back off and just stay stay off to the side and let the social worker handle. It has been an incredible success. It has lowered the it has lowered the amount of arrests. It's lowered the amount of of, of uh, involuntary uh, hospitalizations. It's lowered the uh, it's lowered the violence. They, there has been no there. As far to my knowledge, just I read I remember reading about this sometime last year, so it may have changed since then. But no accounts of the social worker being put in danger. It saves a ton of money because instead of instead of sending 
instead of sending, you know, two or three squad cars to a scene because somebody's having a mental health crisis, you're actually sending somebody who can actually knows how to deal with these health crises and actually can talk somebody through it. Because sometimes these people just need to be talked to. Sometimes they just need to be talked down. They need somebody to listen. The cop's not there to do that. The cop's there to, to, to bash heads in and arrest somebody if they need to, to just end the situation. So, so it's been a really, it's been a really cool success. Uh, they were going to be rolling it out to the rest of the city because it was such a good success in the in the worst part of Dallas, the south part of Dallas, is some real high crime areas. They were testing it out there first. They're going to yeah. be expanding it to the rest of the city. I'm excited to see where that goes because I think it's I think it's a real world solution, uh, and it, it saves the taxpayers money at the end of the day. So let's go. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely interesting. I always heard another model too, and I don't know if any other people have tried this, but I I remember an old friend of mine who was actually a, a democratic socialist, believe it or not, who was really passionate about this idea and it always stuck out to me. Was the idea of requiring law enforcement? Well, first of all, raising the pay for law enforcement a bit, mm-hmm. and requiring them to take uh, several years in law school uh, mm. rather than putting them through the police academy. Basically, making sure they had a background in law first and foremost, um, making sure that was handled. That always thought was an interesting model uh, because you're basically requiring law enforcement. To what What does a law enforcement officer take an oath to do? Well, Uphold right. the Constitution. Right. That's their, that is their first and primary function is uphold the constitution. And we see the exact happening. Uh, and we see the exact opposite happening throughout, throughout the, uh, throughout. So it's, mm-hmm. it's one of those things that there's such a systemic issue. It's gotta be, it's gotta be solved by, by holding people accountable. I, like at the end of the day, people don't change their behavior just because they, uh, trying to figure out which one. There we go. <laughs> I like it. Now you're messing around with the settings here. Uh, there we go. There we go. I could, oh, she's back. As soon as I get it, as soon as I figure it out, as soon as I figure out which one to go to, she's back. Um, I don't understand. Yeah. Another thing I kind of wanted to bring up tonight um, yes. was the death penalty and some of DeSantis' comments. He recently stated that he thought that the death penalty should be uh, applied even when only eight jurors, mm-hmm. instead of a unanimous jury, uh, if only eight jurors out of the 12 um uh approved it so i you know to to me i forget what the number is but there have been over like 30 or 40 uh innocent people sentenced to death row by florida so it's it's one of those things uh, over what period of time do you know uh i don't i don't have that information i I was gonna say because that's that's interesting context um so that does not surprise me at all. And I actually saw those comments. I, I think what there's a, re- is it a floor requirement that says you have to have a unanimous jury in order to apply the death penalty? Or is that a national requirement? You know better it's, than I, I think it's the, I think it's the most common requirement. I don't okay. think every single state does require that, but I think most states, uh, most states do require that. I mean, I think that that, that is a, by very, very means a common sense solution. I mean, in all cases, the death penalty, now you're not even going to mention the death penalty costs more money for taxpayers than it would be to just put them in prison for the rest of their life. Like, that's a legitimate thing. Like, it's actually more, that's a, it's an anecdote you hear from a lot of people like Ron DeSantis and people kind of on the right that why send somebody to jail for the rest of their life when you could just kill them, right, and save the taxpayers a bunch of money. It actually does cost more money to administer mm-hmm. the death penalty than it does to put them in jail for their entire life. That's right. one thing. But if you're, that's just never dollars and cents. You know, the way that I see the whole thing on the death penalty is if one person is incorrectly or, uh, uh, you know, wrongly convicted and sent to jail, that's too many, period. And we've already had that failure happen many times. You say 30 and 40. 30 since 1973. And that leads the country, leads the country and acquittals from death row. So that's Florida only. 
right? So that's 40, 40 people that had their lives taken from them for no reason. And you can't get that back. I mean, so, well, they, they were found, they were, those were on death row, but they were, they were uh, exonerated. So exonerated they weren't executed. After, oh, so they weren't right. executed. They were exonerated while right. they were on death row. Right. Okay. Right. Um, Which is okay. still, it's one of those things that again, if people who say, well, we should just make the process simpler. Those 30 people would have been killed by the state for a wrong reason for no oh, more reason. than that, more than that. I assume if you're going to make the process even e easier to facilitate. Um, but yeah, 30 and 40 could be cakewalk, but you know, ignoring the economic argument, the state has absolutely no right to, to, to take away your life period. Um, and you know, even in the most heinous crimes, it's arguable, man, it really is even arguable that like putting somebody in prison for their entire life and doing some of the things they do around, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, isolations, uh, right. uh yeah. Solitary confinement. Solitary, Solitary confinement is the word I was looking for. I mean, that's more cruel and unusual than killing people. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so if you look at the numbers, if you look at the numbers of people who get put on solitary confinement and look, I, I have to look it up, but it, it is extraordinary. The mental health issues, the PTSD that people struggle with because of being put in, in solitary confinement, being alone is not what humans are meant to be. Right. It is no matter how introverted you are. And I'm an extreme introvert. You cannot get her all. You can. You will mentally. Your mental health will suffer greatly if you're put. If you're uh, kept away from people, you yeah. need communication mm -hmm. with other people. And so, yeah, it's 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 really awful. I, you know, conservatives like to talk tough about about you know, oh, we need to punish people more for for this and for that. Okay, think about this. Our cops kill more people than get killed in mass shootings. Yeah, absolutely. You want to talk um, about tough on crime? Okay, where's the results? What cops are cops killed uh, eleven hundred people or something last year? It's the worst ever, as far as I yeah, can. Uh, the, the worst worst year yeah. on record. Mm -hmm. Where are the results? We had our crime went up last year. So if, if we're being you know that's being tough on crime. Where are the results? Right. It, 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 there's very little. There's very little correlation between being tougher on crime and lower crime. Uh, crime and in fact it, it it can be it is there's correlation in the opposite direction because the longer yeah. you keep people in jail the more likely they are going to be to commit crimes when they get out. So we've got, we've got a, ju a justice system in this country. That's really backwards in a lot of ways. Um, and, and frankly, frankly, we need, we, one, we needed to make sure that anybody, if your crime did not have, does not have a victim, don't put them in jail. That's, that's the first step. The other mm -hmm. step is we need to focus on recommendation, recommendation and, and, um, uh, and, and, uh, What's the term for it? Where you where you're actually uh, uh, you, restitution? You, restitution. That's the word for it. Uh, restitution. So if you cause somebody harm, if you've stolen from them, etc., that it becomes a debt that you pay back to them. Mm -hmm. And so we and the other. Um, so that's one of those things that we we have to focus on instead of just focusing on on punishment. We actually have to focus on some restitution. Show people that they've actually harmed somebody by these actions. You know, a lot of people think, well, I steal from somebody, insurance will cover it. Well, you don't think about how much that, like when somebody breaks into your house or your car, that's a very personal violation of your space. That, that affects people a lot. And so I mm -hmm. think that that's one of those things that we have to we have to show people that their actions cause harm. And so instead of putting these 15, 16, 17 year old kids in jail for doing some of these petty crimes, let's show them that their actions have consequences. It's, it, you know, that we've got, we've got a lot wrong. And I think that we have to, we have to work towards showing people, you know, especially at a younger age when they're, when they're still you know, we could still change their course of action uh, instead of sending them to, you know, school for criminals. Let's actually show them a path out. Yeah. I would love to see mentor programs for those kids, like as part of their 
uh, rehabilitation. We also just don't have the volunteer people in this country to do stuff like that either, though. Like no one. Yeah, there is a a short supply of nonprofits that those kids can volunteer at for their community service hours. Mm. Yeah, I. uh... I know that I know that we're talking about having uh, Dan Johnson of the community of the Institute for Community Solutions. And one of his studies goes into uh, we'll have to have him on and have him talk about this study because it's really interesting. But he goes into how getting kids out of some of these uh, halfway houses and actually putting them to work and working with these kids has really good results, really positive results for the community. You know, when you when you just send kids out onto the street and let them go, they don't know where to go. They're going to go wherever they can go to find uh, to eat to sleep, to find a shelter They're, you know, they're, they're put in survival mode and, and mm-hmm. we've got to figure out a way to keep kids from having to go into survival mode and doing whatever it takes to survive. So no joke, no yeah. joke. Yeah. Oh, well you, um, you had covered that double amputee shooting. I was going to say there, it feels like every other week there's another example of this. It's more and more again, just a call to action that we've got to uh, hold our, hold our, uh, our, our public, uh, officials accountable in this situation and stop the virtue signaling. I mean, meanwhile, it's, it's all virtue signaling and not even related to the law enforcement conversation. But one of the things that's been getting under my skin is watching the new GOP majority kind of play out. Um, what's what I'm looking for their theater. Um, right. Uh, basically play their show. Like today they had a vote to condemn socialism, which what? Um, what? Yeah, they they. What? I mean, Kevin McCarthy orchestrated a vote to condemn socialism. I think that was the the vote uh, to get everyone on the record as to whether or not they condemn socialism. Um, and then immediately turned around and used that as ammunition to say, "Oh, the Democrats are a bunch of socialists," because something like a hundred of them didn't show up to vote. I mean, for all you know, I'm going to play the devil's advocate side on the I'm other sure side. They're busy they're getting their nails done, so it's fine. Right. <laughs> they probably should have showed up to vote to get to you know vote for it, whatever. But that's the kind of that's the kind of reform we we see. Like you see Kevin McCarthy sitting there complaining about the national debt, meanwhile praising Donald Trump, who's under his presidency, the national debt increased more than any other president in the history of the United States um, by a by a long shot. And again, no solutions. Absolutely from the duopoly, not on either side. Right now, it's the Republicans in control of the House, but it's very you know it's very consistent. Uh, the only people offering real solutions to this are libertarians. So I, you know, if you get the time for the listener, um, I would definitely go check out the the legislation that Justin Amash introduced, or at least so co-sponsored in 2020. That really uh, took a, um, a really an axe to the the, the qualified immunity situation, uh, because again, when you look at it, the duopoly are not providing solutions. The only the only party providing solutions are alternative parties right now, par- parties like the Libertarian Party. So. And those are the issues we need to be hammering on. That's, that's where we, that's what the Libertarian Party has got to take, you know, take the stand and say, these are the policies we stand for. These are the issues that we can actually put in front of voters and say, vote for us. This is what will happen. Because, you know, Republicans and Democrats right now are just telling their problem, we're going to get this done for you. Instead of saying, okay, this is how we're going to get something done for you. They just say, well, we'll make sure you're paid, you know, your, your, your rent's paid for. We'll make sure, we'll make sure to protect your social security. We'll make sure to do this and that. They don't right. actually provide solutions. They just say, they just give you an idea of what the end goal is, right? We're going to stop woke teachers. We're going to, you know, all these things that we're, they're going to do, but they don't actually say, okay, this is what we're going to do to, to accomplish that. Uh, so that's, that's where the Libertarian Party can really do. That's why on the CLC website, uh, go to lpclc.org or wiki.lpclc.org. Uh, we've got a bunch of policies 
uh, listed out there. We'll be expanding on that. Uh, real world applications, most of them are at local levels. I mean, simple zoning laws impact your day-to-day life in a lot of ways you don't even think about. Uh, so it's it's one of those things that local governments can really can really put a put a stamp in on your freedoms, uh, even if you don't even if you don't want to take advantage of it. Your neighbors uh, neighbors get limited too. So so yeah. So I know we're about a time, but is there any news on the CLC front that is worth discussing or talking about before we leave? And the wiki is a great great thing to check out if you haven't already. I know that you've got a debate coming up. Soho debate coming yeah. up here, Jonathan. Why don't you tell everybody about that? <laughs> yeah, I will be. Uh, yeah, I'll be debating national divorce at the Soho Forum in New York. Uh, that'll be the twenty first. If you're in New York, absolutely uh, get your tickets. You'll have to get them beforehand. I don't think you could buy them at the event, so make sure you buy them beforehand. Uh, we will be doing a CLC event beforehand because I know we've got a bunch of people in the area. So uh, keep in, keep in touch with our socials uh, to find out about those. Uh, and join us before the event, and then obviously after there's a there's a little dinner party. I think uh, for anybody who uh, gets the tickets for that as well. So make sure make sure you do that. It's going to be fun. It's National Divorce. Uh, I'll be debating Ryan Mc, uh, McMakin of the Mises Institute. Uh, he'll be taking the uh, affirmative side of that issue, and I'll be taking the negative side. It'll be fun. I think it'll be good. It, it'll be a it'll be a fun evening. I think that I think that this is an issue that's really kind of found its way into the Libertarian Party, and in Libertarian yeah. circles, we've had a lot of debates. And arguments about it so i think hammering out some of these things uh, in this style format because instead of it being just a, you know a podcast that you go on and just argue back and forth um it's actually going to be a set style and set uh, set stage that we can actually hammer down some of these issues and say okay here's the problems with national divorce or here's the problems with if we don't go to you know don't go, don't go towards national divorce uh so i think it'll be a good way to hammer hammer this issue a bit so it'll be fun yeah. Whoever wins, we get to lay it to rest. No one's allowed to talk about right. it. Right. We'll never talk about it again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited exactly. about that. I'm excited about that as well. Oh, yeah. um, yep. And I and I think uh, too, unrelated to this, but um, the CLC as well is uh, ramping up a lot of efforts to to start. Um, you know, really looking forward to the next election cycle. I know that there's a lot of work being done that organized state affiliates, and I know you're you're behind a lot. You're you've yeah. got some people on the day to day, but yeah, we're working right now. Uh, kind of the biggest thing on, on my plate is figuring out some candidate training over the year. We've got some news that should be coming out in a month or two uh, to get some of that going. Because that is a focus of ours is to get, you know, we want to focus. Our candidates are the party. I mean, ultimately, it doesn't matter who's at the end of the day, whoever's running the party. It's the candidates who get to voters. It's the talk to voters and put the message in front of voters. Right. Um, that's the most important aspect of a political party. So that's that's who we want to focus on. We want to get some good training out there, get some good uh good materials in their hands and give some good skills because there's a lot of people that can speak well for Liberty and we need to find those voices and elevate them. So that'll be the, that'll be a lot of our mission over the next year or two for sure. Yeah. It's one thing to run. It's another thing to have like the, you know, the tools that you need to run and have it somebody right. behind you. And that's, I think that's really the vision that, that yeah. I've heard you articulate and that I've heard from other people on the board is that we need to make sure that the part that the caucus itself, is providing those tools for candidates. So I'm pretty excited to see that. And there's a lot of work being done there as well. So very exciting stuff. <clears throat> and if you're in the Seattle area, we have our monthly meetup on March 1st out in West Seattle. You can get information at uh, on meetup and Facebook. No, I think it's just on meetup. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we should have uh, we should have a CLC meetup uh, up and going. So check that out. Our website has everything that usually. Yeah, lpclc.org slash join. Get on the mailing list for sure. That works. All right. I think that's it for today. Thank you, guys. We'll be back yeah. next week. Thank you. See you guys. Good talking to you guys.